This is episode 42 of the Immunology Podcast, Immune Mechanisms After Stroke with Dr. Arthur Leitz. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rad. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where you have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast will be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Arthur Leach from the University of Munich on the podcast to talk about his research on the interplay between the brain and the immune system after a stroke. We also got our usual roundup of recent highlights of immunology news coming up, but first... So, Jason, we'd like to remind our listeners about Neural Cell News, one of stem cells' free scientific newsletters. Neural Cell News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in neural cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with Neural Cell News. Subscribe for free at neuralcellnews.com. Sounds like it's a second brain for all your neurology needs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a very, very smart pun. Get your second brain delivered to you every Wednesday in your inbox. Exactly. So it's that time of the year, isn't it? I don't know. Which time of the year is it? I mean, it's it's American turkey feasting time here. I heard. I like it because it's not religious, right? So you don't mm -hmm. have to have any religion ascribed to it. Mm-hmm gonna ignore all the bad things associated with it because you know that, that's how you have to roll but it's a fun holiday you get together with family you eat food hopefully you don't argue about politics you know it's <laughs> nice cooking a turkey is like a challenge though you know they're big birds yeah i've never cooked a turkey you can deep fry turkeys that's what they do in the south but the trick is that you if they're frozen do not do it you have to let them thaw otherwise when you put it in as frozen the water immediately vaporizes which then vaporizes the oil and exploderates and causes burn. i saw videos yeah i saw like like public announcement videos from the the, the firefighters or something like saying don't do this and they did it and yeah. it was terrible oh but there's all types of things so we like inject we brine ours first and you inject butter under the skin everywhere and then you roast it upside down and you flip it it's a whole thing you can barbecue the turkey that's great but but you know good turkey is hard to do but if you can do it it's it's delicious can you do a good turkey? Are you the so, person in so charge of the turkey? My mother taught my wife, and my wife now does the turkey for everyone's joint Thanksgiving because both sides of my family come together on Thanksgiving. Okay, I'm not sure how I feel about that. My mother took care of it, now my wife does this, so I don't have to, but so, I'll take it. <laughs> so so, so we, we divide the labor up and that I do most of the day-to-day -day and weekly cooking. And I am in charge of all beef products. And so my wife decided to stick to solely poultry as a mastery area and mostly focuses on holiday poultry. Okay, fair enough. Okay. We, have, we have a division of labor based on protein type. Okay, that sounds that sounds fair enough. Well, when is then when there, when is uh, Thanksgiving again exactly? Well, so it'll be uh two days after all of this. So it'll be this upcoming Thursday. Ah, okay. It's always on a Thursday, right? Or it is. It a... it's, always, it's always on like the third Thursday of the month of November or something like that. All right. All right. Okay. Well, enjoy. Uh, don't put the fried, that, that frozen turkey in the fryer. No. And not. enjoy it, all the butter under the skin. Sure, that sounds delicious. There's, there's nothing happy, healthy about Thanksgiving. <laughs> nothing. But with, with all that eating, you know what happens here 
uh, your, your microbiome gets a whole bunch of food and then it will create some uh, downstream metabolites for you. And that's what I'm about to talk about with this very hard to do segue. So my, <laughs> my first paper is in nature metabolism. See, you mm -hmm. got to metabolize that turkey bird. And yeah. it is, genome microbiome interplay provides insight into the determinants of the human metabolome. First author is Christian Denner. Last author is Sean M. Gibbons. As I said, it's in Nature Metabolism 2022, published the 10th of November. So this paper takes, uh, analyzes variants in 930 blood metabolites across a cohort of about 15, almost 1,600 people, and has paragenomic and microbiome data and controls for as many covariants as possible that they can do. And they're looking at both the genetic and microbiome contribution to a metabolite profile. So this has kind of been done in parts before, but no one's ever gone all the way deep on both at once and compared. You know, for a given metabolite, how much of it is genetic, how much of it is um, microbiome mediated. And so they have a couple of really cool findings here, and I'm not going to go in order of the paper. I'm just going to try to pull out the kind of the big highlights. So one of them is if you have a genetic polymorphism that affects the metabolites, there's two flavors. There's ones like downstream small changes, and there's a subset that are big sweeping changes to a bunch of associated metabolites. So like genes that affect bile acid conjugation are going to affect all the bile acids, not just one. So not surprising, and they see that pretty well. Secondly, the second big conclusion is that mostly the effects by the bacteria and the micro or, and the genes, so your genetic background and your bacteria are orthogonal to each other. So that means that the variance for a metabolite by your genes is additive to the variance of that metabolite by your microbiome. And they do a bunch of statistical analysis to show this. But the idea is that they're acting on different parts of the process and a metabolite can be influenced by either or both. And I'll talk a little bit more of that in a second. But if it's by both, it's not the same way by both of them. They're going to have additive or different effects. So you get to different paths down different pathways, not the same result. You get to the, not the same result down different pathways. You get to different results. That's the whole point here. And that's one of their big findings. The next thing they find is that the microbiome dominates. So most metabolites, if you look between them, more metabolites vary based on the microbiome than they do based on genetics. Not surprising. There's a lot more genes running around in the microbiome to be influencing this total between all the species there than what your human's doing. And the effects are bigger as well from the microbiome part. And things that are microbiome dominated, only a small subset have genetic also effects on the same metabolite, but metabolites affected by the genes, many of them also have a microbiome component on it. And they also, but then they also again act on different parts. Bile acids being the most famous. Bile acid metabolism is almost done primarily by the bacteria, which we know about very well. Um, but then the conjugation reuptake is done by the host, which is also not surprising because that's, who does the conjugation so it's different parts of the whole thing either one of those will screw something up or change something downstream and further on so that is it's kind of a tour de force paper which is why it's in nature metabolism it's not like super like oh wow i didn't expect any of this hence it's not nature 
but it's a really good data set for people who care about this. And it really dives into the contribution of both parts and with noticing the fact that, that it's really additive separate components that are being impacted, which I think is the key highlight here of the whole paper. Yeah. So basically your, your bacteria are dictating more of that of what's in your blood than you sell yourself. Correct. It's, a, it's influencing it more. View it as another organ. Yeah. Uh, right. Basically. And a... are there any unexpected ones that they were like, oh, we did not expect this correlation? No, they try to do some linking to some disease states and stuff, but it's all known mm -hmm. established things like, oh, this thing that's bad for Alzheimer's. Well, the bacteria really affect that. And we already kind of do that. So, yeah. So no, I, I don't think I don't think there's anything surprising, but the amount of data they're able to get and the fact they're able to get a really clear picture in their methods is what's important here. They were able to build a really good data set that answered and aligned with a lot of other knowledge, but is much more robust than they've done previously. Yeah. I mean that's also nice, right? To have something that we kind of already knew, but in a very robust platform that can also be then used for other experiments for other evaluations as a benchmark right and it answered other papers have answered parts of the same question before but this answers all the same stuff at once with one data set showing that it is really yeah. unified understanding which i like yeah good stuff yeah. very important with thanksgiving and all the metabolizing metabolism we're going to have yeah metabolites floating a, around here soon. what about that that was a tryptophan that you tryptophan, get tryptophan yes it does yeah. make you sleepy yeah. but you know the whole turkey tryptophan thing is a myth. Turkey is just another high protein food. Other other chicken, beef have just almost as much tryptophan. It's a thing. It's just <laughs> we just don't get, maybe don't eat as much. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't eat ourselves to death every day of the week. At least All right. some of us don't. Enjoy your tryptophan, man. Um, okay, so I will. I have two. Well, first two papers. Um, not sure which which one to present first, but I'm gonna go with the one that it's very close to my heart, and I think it's very interesting. If only a little bit, I don't want to say disappointed because that wouldn't be fair, but it's like ah, uh, it left me a little bit deflated. So I'm gonna start then, and then we can finish with the high notes. So this paper is called uh, "Non-Viral Precision T Cell Receptor Replacement for Personalized Cell Therapy." And I actually first came across the results from this paper in a presentation given uh, in the latest uh, Society for the Immunotherapy of Cancer, SITC, conference, which was in Boston early this month. And I was very excited to see the results. I hadn't been, I, I knew this company, which is called Pact Pharma, was doing this it's a clinical trial. And it's very close to my own research. Uh, so I was very eager to see all the results together. So let me talk to you about personalized uh, T-cell therapy in cancer. So we know that, of course, T-cells are really good at picking up uh, antigens, so or picking up specific peptides being presented on MHC and hopefully separating this from the self, non-self. And uh, in many cases, we know that because of specific mutations that come out from uh, the mutations that are present in, uh, in the genome of a cancer cell, some of these mutations end up in protein coding sequences. They end up being presented in the uh, MHC of these cancer cells, therefore making them available for immunosurveillance and for T cells to find. Uh, 
so this this and these neoantigens, as they're usually referred to, which are arise from mutations, from somatic mutations in the tumor cells, have been for a long time been considered a very promising target because unlike other tumor or associated antigens that have been kind of looked at before, these are supposed to be very specific for the tumor, which would reduce, for example, toxicity, which has been an issue uh, when you look into T-cell therapies that are targeting target uh, tumor-associated antigens. Uh, I think a particular example is uh, MART1, which is a melanoma-associated antigen that is also expressed in healthy cells to a lower degree, but um, didn't really show very promising results or very high toxicity at high um, concentrations of, of cells recognizing this antigen. So it makes, made people kind of move away from this kind of tumor antigens. There are other that work better, but in general, I think the we're, we're a little more skeptical about these targets. So neoantigens can be very promising because as they're unique, um, it's sometimes hard to say how much they're expressed, how much they're being presented. So there's a lot of variability because each protein is different, but there's a lot of uh, preclinical data suggesting that they're interesting and good targets to look into. So I was this this, this clinical trial was run by a company called Pact Pharma, which has developed a protocol in which they can identify in patients in the tumor from from, from cancer patients specific somatic mutations in their in their tumors in the cancer cells, uh, a predict which of these uh, mutations will result in neoantigens being expressed on the surface and uh, find within the T-cells of the patient, T-cells that are capable of recognizing that antigen in the MHC, so being presented by these tumor cells. So they have a very interesting pipeline. They do this, they clearly spend a lot of time developing this protocol. So basically they identify they buy, with bioinformatics, they generate all of these synthetic MHC uh, molecules loaded with the uh, neoantigens of uh, neoantigenic peptides. And they use this to scan CD8 cells from the patient's blood until they find some CD8 cells that can bind to these reagents because they are recognizing this peptide. And then they use the sequence of their TCRs to generate a large um, product, a large amount of cells uh, that are have uh, uh, have been edited using CRISPR to express these transgenic TCRs, um, and this is a uh, this is a, an approach that is also being used by uh, and and pioneered by other biotech companies, and also within academic research is very interesting. I think there's a lot of expectation. Uh, and there has never been tried in humans because until now, until the advent of CRISPR-mediated gene editing, it was really, really hard to have this level of personalized cell products for each uh, patient because each patient requires a different, it has completely different new antigens, has therefore completely different TCRs that are going to be selected, different MHCs. So uh, this wouldn't work like you have with CAR T-cells, which everybody gets the same CAR, uh, on their T cells, and it's base is very much e much easier to standardize. So um, they treated sixteen patients. They went bold, and they had a lot of uh, colorectal cancer patients, which are um, microsatellite stable, which 
are kind of known to not respond very well to immunotherapy. They don't have a lot of new antigens to choose from, but in their pipeline, they could really pick up new antigens from every patient and TCRs from every of the 16 patients that they treated. I mean, they also, they, they uh, screened a lot more patients and they didn't find any, but they could get away with 16 patients. Um, they also treated uh, breast cancer patients and one patient with ovarian cancer, melanoma, lung cancer, a very kind of, uh, they just put a lot of patients, tried, they were kind of tumor agnostic in a way. And they treated them with the products derived from their own T cells, edited to express the selected TCRs that are were selected on the basis of being able to recognize new antigens being presented. And they infused a lot of cells um, in the order. So they had different dose levels, but in the higher dose levels, they had up to 4 billion so four times 10 to the nine uh, uh, new antigen specific T cells being infused. And here's where kind of the, the, the bummer comes in which they did not see very much clinical benefit in any of these 16 patients. They only had about, um, they had only five patients that had stable disease for a while. Uh, but 11 of the patients directly continued continued progressing, even though in many of them, they could actually find the T cells, uh, the transgenic T cells in their tumors, infiltrating their tumors. But this didn't seem to be sufficient to mediate tumor uh, reduction. And I think that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I could talk about this paper for a long time, but I think this is the highlights of the study. Um, and I think in a, in a one sense, it makes shows that it kind of is feasible to do this personalized uh, pipeline, which I mean, feasible, I would say a little bit between um, with a little bit of a grain of salt because they did take over 200 days uh, most in most of the time to generate, to select the patients and generate the product. So between the patient was recruited until they got the cells, there were almost... Yeah, several, several months. And some patients cannot really wait that long. So that's, I know it's a huge issue. Um, but I think it's a good proof of principle. And it was very interesting to see uh, the first uh, patient trial uh, for this technology. So what do you think went wrong? Well, there's, I, I really don't know because... I, they're all over the place in this study. So one of the things that's kind of surprised me is the fact, so they have multiple different tumors to start, tumors, difficult tumors. Like if you want to start, if you want to start, I would have started with something more like melanoma because probably you'll find more on melanoma. We already have clinical data in humans showing that there is new antigen reactivity in melanoma products, uh, in tumor infiltrating lymphocyte products uh, that have shown been shown to work in many people. Um, so there's already the tumors were difficult. Uh, the, they took a really long time. So patients maybe just deteriorated too much between the, the, the time they were recruited until the time they actually got the cells. Uh, and also, um, this is very interesting. This, they clearly worked a lot on their production, um, uh, protocols and they had several iterations. So the initial products were not, I don't want to say very good, but they were, they didn't have as many transgenic cells. There were a lot of other cells that were also infused to the patients. So this might have reduced if, 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 if efficaciousness of the 
therapy. And one thing that they also mentioned is that for some cases, they detected the neoantigens, but then after the patients were treated, they actually realized that the the tumors of these patients were not expressing those new antigens in the surface anymore because they had lost the HLA uh, uh, allele that allowed them to do so. And they were like, oh, we should have checked this before. So yes. Uh, So I think that's something that they clearly learned, uh, but that also there's a lot of those TCRs that, TCRs that had TCRs that were good, but their target was just not there anymore to be found. So there's a lot of complexity on this. Um, so a lot of reasons, but we'll see. I think in the next coming uh, years, there will be other similar trials coming out and with maybe different protocols with different tumor types. So we'll have a better picture. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't have a segue here, so I'm just going to jump to the other paper because it's all the way in tuberculosis land and mm. I can't bridge immunotherapy to tuberculosis yet. Someone go go do that paper. <laughs> so it's in cell. An ancestral mycobacterial effector promotes dissemination of infection. First author is Joseph W. Salins. Last author is David M. Tubin. It is uh, released on November 9th in cell. So this starts as a case report where they've had a individual and they traced it to multiple other people in that were all the nidus of infection of this uh person um originally from vietnam and him and four and six of the seven other cases that were associated with him had extra pulmonary disease with tb including skeletal disease so the probability of that occurring is normally is five times ten to the minus six based on what we know about tb normally having extra pulmonary manifestations in the bone. So very rare, right? Like this is like a one in a million thing. So something was going on here and that was their clue. Now, TB apparently has different strains, right? And some of them are ancestral and some of them are more modern. This apparently was the, the, the so they sequenced it and found out this was an ancestral strain of tuberculosis, which is an interesting thing. It apparently has just survived as one of the ancestral lineages. Um, and there's other ones that are, so it's L1. There's also L5 through 7, which are ancestral and modern L2 through 4. L1 is geographically limited to the area bordering the Indian Ocean, but causes a lot of disease. And this is a set from there. They eventually found an important gene, but how they got to it was kind of neat. Um, they looked at genes that affect the dissemination that they knew about, right? And so one of these is this gene called, it's a type 7 secreted effector ESXM. And so they looked really at these cluster of genes known to affect um, migration and general function and found that the this ancestral lineage, unlike the modern ones, the modern ones have a stop codon placed in this gene through mutation over time. This one doesn't. It makes a full-length product. That was one of the big things they found was different. And so then they do a whole bunch of experiments. They do them in mice. And they do them in zebrafish, which is a national host for tuberculosis, and show either through knocking out this gene in the original strain or knocking in the full length gene into other strains, including then they'll do it in murine or embovis as well, which is the bovine version. They show that this gene is responsible for everything that we see. And I'm going to talk about what we see here. 
in a second, but they basically do all the different stuffs. Knock it out, knock it back in in the knockout, swap it in a species, and then show that this is the phenotype. So what this gene does, I'll get to in a second, but having the full length gene changes macrophage migration. It changes it, and they show this on EM towards the end of the paper. It changes it from these uh, laminopodia to philopodia, more migration, transwell shows it, EM shows it structural changes. It, it basically alters the migratory capacity of macrophages. And if you then do it in zebrafish, shows that the virus, or the virus, the bacteria, disseminates much more rapidly with the full length. So between all the different parts of the paper, they, they really clearly established that this is the cause of it. They established that it's affecting the macrophages in this way to cause dissemination of macrophages across the midline, causes all types more extra lung disease, right? And uh, affects how the macrophages move and their morphology. What does it do? So they are actually able to figure out some of the mechanism behind it as well, which I was impressed by. There is another gene, it's called ARPC2. Um, and it, so what they said is ARPC2 knockout macrophages look like this with the full length thing. And so they showed that this gene phenocopies that. So if you just take an inhibitor, it, replicates what we see so if you take an arpc inhibitor it replicates this full length version versus the knockout truncated version and so what that does and this gene's involved in cytoskeletal axis organization in macrophages and so this secreted protein called esxm affects the arpc2 pathway in macrophages to cause them to be hypermigratory and also not quite as sensically migratory. They just kind of go everywhere, um, which causes more dissemination. Now, the question is, well, why did it lose this, this gene or why was there selective pressure? And they then theorize that because it's going everywhere, that dissemination isn't actually as replicatively beneficial for the bacteria, right? Staying in the lungs means you're going to spew more out, which means you're going to affect other hosts and replicate more. So there wouldn't necessarily be selective pressure to maintain the full version, and thus the stop codon, if introduced, could persist quite well. So there you go. There is a gene in ancient tuberculosis strains still running around that causes that hijacks your macrophages and causes them to behave funny and just cause more disseminated disease. But modern tuberculosis that we see most often in the West does not have it. Where does the disease disseminate to particularly? Everywhere, but in this case, particularly they're looking at the bone. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. This is horrible, having mycobacteria in your bone. It is not great. Mm. Okay, that's very interesting, right? To see the evolution, kind of the co-evolution with the, with the host and how sometimes you give up something to gain something else uh, in genetic uh, currency terms. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting, and seeing it track over time is neat. Yeah, yeah. All right, so for the last paper today, I just want to say 
because I forgot to give credit to the authors of the of the paper I discussed. I was so excited to talk about the paper that I forgot to give my kudos to Susan Foy, first author, uh, and uh, the corresponding authors were Anthony Rivas, who is uh, at UCLA, so the academic partner, and Arati Rao and Stephanie Mandel at Pact Pharma. Stephanie Mandel was in presenting this data at the, the SITC conference. So just want to say congratulations, guys. Um, so it's still like in accelerated review, so it's not technically not published yet. Um, okay, so for my second paper, I'm going to talk about vaccines. I want to talk about vaccines against influenza, which I think seems to be very relevant. It looks like influenza season is early this year. I was looking at some data. Uh, so, yay. Uh, people get vaccinated. I got my shot a couple of days ago. So hopefully that helped for something. Um, but uh, I want to talk about a kind of universal vaccination against influenza. Uh, using a less typical antigen target. So paper published in Immunity, first author Sied Moin from uh, the lab of Masaru Kaneyiko at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the NIAD at the NIH. And uh, the title is Co-Immunization with Hamaglutinin Stem immunogens elicits cross-group neutralizing antibodies and broad protection against influenza A viruses. So basically the idea of this, of this approach is that although most of the immunity against influenza viruses is focused on the very kind of variable uh, head of the hemagglutinin protein on the surface of, of influenza viruses, uh, there's also the stem uh, that is also contains potentially immunogenic epitopes, but they're just less potent and they're not kind of really um, favored during the uh, the natural immunity establishment. And also when it comes to developing vaccines, you want vaccines that are very strong and that bind very uh, easily. And usually that's why we have... Uh, vaccines directed against the head. But the problem is that this has a lot of variation. Basically, you have two main groups of influenza uh, vaccine, influenza um, A viruses, group one and group two, they have similar stems within this group. But then within inside one group, you have you know, the H5 and H1, H2, H3, and so on. So they all vary uh, vary uh, among each other. And then when you get a vaccination, it's usually against specific subtypes of influenza. So this in this uh, paper, they look into using the stem to generate a very uh, immunogenic vaccine that will generally generate broadly neutralizing antibodies. And they have a particular vaccination kind of um, platform which in which they use uh, ferritin nanoparticles that are displaying the antigen and apparently these are very immunogenic and they're really good so they had already some previous work in which they found that they could uh, use this ferritin nanoparticles with stems uh, from the from group uh, one influenza viruses, and they could actually generate a broadly protective and broadly neutralizing immunity. And so now they're moving on to also group two, so to kind of encompass all of influenza um, 
A viruses and whether they can actually have the one vaccine that contains both the groups and rules them all in a way. And basically, they, what I also think is very interesting about this paper, they, they do, of course, immunization in animal models. Uh, they do the analyze uh, what kind of antibodies and the sequences that characterize the antibodies that are, are, that are, are um, rising from this vaccination. They do cryo-EM structures to understand exactly how the antibodies are binding to the stems. Um, and they also have uh, they also have amongst their animal models, they have some macaques as non-human primates. Because one of the points they make, and I, I really I really agree with this, I think it's very important, is that often when it comes to vaccination, when you want to look very closely into this uh, very specific antigens and very kind of whether the possibility of, of getting broadly neutralizing uh, antibody responses, the, the species in which you look is very important because we the the specificity of these antibodies is determined after all by the 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 the, the variable the variable genes that we have uh, coding into the 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 chains of these antibodies and those genes are very species specific in a way so it's very hard if you want to really look into uh, epitopes and and kind of the determine determinants of antigenic structure in uh, of kind of binding uh, of between an antigen and a specific antibody, it's really hard to model this in a different species or a species that's so different to us, such as a mouse or a ferret. And that's why they really put the effort using non-primate, uh, non-human primates, because they have slightly more similar repertoire. But in the end, uh, they do kind of try to model it to what they see in humans as being broadly neutralizing antibodies. Um, so basically what they, what they find is that they can indeed uh, use this platform with ferritin nanoparticles to induce uh, a response, that, which includes kind of a very select uh, group of antibodies that have a specific V chain or a kind of a specific group of V segments in their in their in their heavy chain, which have specific motifs that bind to very specific parts of the stem. But this is conserved enough to to be used as a broadly neutralizing target, uh, and they see this also in, in, in non-human primates. So in this case, they can see, they can show that they can use this as a model for a human situation. And they do a lot of analysis, like really look very close into the structure and identify exactly which are the amino acids that are mediating this, this recognition. So I think it's really interesting because the idea of having, you know, new broadly neutralizing vaccines that if we can have this Maybe it's not too strong, but it's enough to, for example, if you can stockpile these kind of vaccines that would help against any unpre unpredicted uh, influenza strain. Uh, usually you would want to have also a, a vaccine against the, the, the hypervariable part because it's usually a better, it works better, but maybe you don't have it in stock and you have to make it. So this could be a good uh complement to the need to change and generate new vaccines every year against the strains that are circulating. So this is like one of the holy grails of vaccination. Um, I've always learned that it's really hard to generate an antibody to that, that stalk region versus the head and that there, it doesn't work as well for the downstream like coding and all of that. And so I'm wondering if even with binding, if it's going to work. 
right? Because there's this idea that even if it binds to that stalk region, then the the part of the antibody that's sticking out that you know you want your rest of your immune complexes and your immune cells to find is going to be sterically hindered by the head of the influenza vaccine uh, virus itself. Yeah. Um... This is one of the challenges that they've had, but you agree because it's less variable, right? And so it can become universal, yeah. but then it doesn't develop the antigenicity. It doesn't develop the downstream response you want. Even if it binds well, you don't get, it's blocked from doing what you want it to do. Yeah. I mean, they can protect the, the animals to some extent with these vaccinations. It's better than having just the nanoparticles without the antigen. So it's not perfect, right? but they do get... Uh, for some of the so some of the combinations, they do get a very good protection. Um, so I think that it seems to be good enough with this uh, ferritin nanostructures that they generate. They seem to be immunogenic enough to protect the animals from uh, the influenza infection. So I guess that also, I mean, the design of your of your vaccine is also very important, right? Um, but I do think that it's, I don't think that the authors necessarily mean to replace this and make it the only vaccine. Um, but I think it's more about making it like a vaccine that can get you halfway uh, and at least make you survive. Probably it's not going to stop um, infection itself, but it will maybe accelerate the immune response. And once you start capturing this antigens, this a secondary immune response can um, be directed against the, the 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 variable, the head of the of this of the HA. Um, so I think it's you don't have to have it all necessarily. I think it's an interesting one. This has always been a a tough struggle. Well, yeah. we'll talk more about flu, and I would actually like to, but um, life is unfortunately calling, and so <laughs> we're going to be here talking. To Dr. Arthur Leitz in a minute. Uh, but before we get to that, if you're looking for a quick reference that you can hang on your lab wall, you know, or maybe your bathroom or maybe your bedroom because you love science that much, stem cell <laughs> technology has a variety of wall charts covering different immunology topics for your choosing. Pick the decoration you want, the learning decoration. You can pick topics including snapshots of COVID-19, an overview of antigen processing presentation, and much, much more. Explore all of the immunology wall charts and order your free copy at stemcell.com slash immunology wall chart. Hi, everyone. We are uh, having a new guest today. We are joined by Professor Arthur Lees. He is Professor of Experimental Neurology at the University of Munich. And the Lees lab studies the role of the immune system in the brain after acute brain lesions, such as a stroke. So I guess we're going to talk about neuroimmunology again in the podcast. Very excited. Uh, Professor Lees, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Brenda. Uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on here. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be in this podcast. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. All right, Brenda. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll start with the first one. Um, I'll go clinical first, which is you, you work a bit in stroke and what cells do after stroke. And you have some work that talks about Part of the reason why say steroids after a stroke have been such a failure and for those who don't know clinically like people have strokes there's a bunch of immune cells that go to the brain we all know this it causes damage so people's bright idea was what if we give steroids after stroke what if we give immunotherapies that you know that, that down regulate inflammation after strokes none of those have ever worked to fix a stroke and i think you have some really cool data that kind of gets into why 
So I was wondering if you could maybe start with that, because I think that's a really interesting um, problem you've been able to like go at. Can I just say before, uh, as part of this question, for the, those people that are non-clinical at all, like myself, what exactly does makes a stroke? What is the, like, what, may we start with that, like, and why we thought that in, uh, reducing inflammation with steroids would help? Yeah, that's, I think that's a great start. And thanks for, for starting also with this clinical perspective. You know, I'm, I'm by training, um, I know I'm here on an immunology podcast, but I would never call myself an immunologist. So by training, I'm, I'm a neurologist, right? Um, and even more specifically, probably a stroke neurologist. As a lab, we're doing neuroimmunology and we're trying to ask questions, you know, in the stroke field, which might seem probably to my fellow strokeologists kind of uncommon, which brings us into the fields of immunology and microbiology and, and whatnot. So, so this kind of is a premise, but uh, that's why everything that I see and what drives us is really from a translation perspective and with the goal in the end really to, to promote patient health and, and, and to help patients with stroke. So stroke is uh, uh, by its pathophysiology a simple disease, right? So it's just an acute occlusion of a cerebral artery. Now, uh, when an, an artery occludes in other organs, this is never a good thing, right? But many organs do have collateral, so other organs that can basically take over the job, which is unfortunately not the case in the brain. So if you do have an occlusion of um, a cerebral artery, this leads ultimately to tissue injury. And this tissue injury is of course impermanent because as you are of course all aware, but maybe it's important to, to mention this again, lost brain tissue remains lost. And what can only be restored is basically the function of the brain, okay? So why was the, the immune system identified as a potential target? Well, I think this goes back to very early observations of brain swelling and edema in the brain, which was perceived, of course, as a part of inflammation. And so um, edema is a very important aspect of inflammation. And then um, with the idea that if we give steroids, we might reduce actually edema and thereby reduce primarily not the immunological sides actually of, uh, um, of its effects, but simply reduce uh, pressure in, in the head. Because of course, pressure is never good for the brain because it's basically trapped within the skull. So edema leads to increased intracranial uh, pressure and this can even have fatal consequences. So I think this is probably the start of this whole field actually, and uh, which drove several studies uh, on uh, on glucocorticoids and steroids, actually, they use in stroke as, as you correctly said, they basically um, didn't show any benefit, but we don't really know why, because actually it's it's uh, it's not a stupid idea to use glucocorticoids um, and kind of leverage the, the known effects on adaptive immunity. Now, with all the knowledge that we have nowadays about inflammatory response to stroke. So you have, I, I like part of your research because you have also looked at specific subtypes, specific populations of, of in, uh, within the brain of immune cells. You have a recent uh, publication in which you actually look into the effect of T cells and overexpression of IL-10 as a, something that could be beneficiary. And of course, when I think of IL-10, I think of Tregs and I think of T cells, like uh, keeping the forward a little bit. So if steroids don't work, 
but there's stuff that seems to be working that is modulating the immune system. So what do we know about cell types that are in, are related to either the uh, the damage or are there, are recruited and are responding to prevent damage in the brain after a stroke? All right, I, I, that's a very good point, right? So so who is actually around there from the neurological side in the brain after a stroke, right? Um, and, and I think that it's very important to make this very clear that stroke, of course, is not an immunological disease, right? But it induces a massive inflammatory response. So I'm sure that most people listening to this podcast, maybe yourself, uh, when you think about neuroimmunology or um, um, a, a, a brain inflammation, right? You would think of an autoimmune brain disorder, multiple sclerosis, encephalitis, and so on. Uh, and of course, that's true. These are kind of primary autoimmune disorders to the brain. But what we see in terms of the magnitude of the inflammatory response after a stroke is much higher, actually, than in these primary autoimmune brain disorders. So the sheer number of T cells invading into the brain, the sheer number of monocytes, neutrophils, that's the all subpopulations of innate adaptive immune system that are recruited in the brain is very large in numbers and very persistent also over time. And also the impact of this inflammatory response on the pathophysiology of the, of the disease after stroke is quite prominent. So this is not just uh, you know uh, a minor side effect, some kind of remote pathological event, but it's really core to the disease pathophysiology. So um, what we've learned over the past decade or so about the kinetics of recruitment of immune cells into the brain is that this is a very paradigmatic and uh, very reproducible series of events actually. In, in early days, like 20 years ago, so probably many people were still referring after stroke to a breakdown of the blood brain barrier and a loss of this um, privilege uh, of the brain, immune privilege, right? And then kind of uh, and, and associate with this like a disorganized flood of immune cells that get into the brain. But this is not at all the case. Uh, what we actually see is that resident immune cells, microglia, but also border-associated macrophages are activated very early, very rapidly, within minutes actually, after ischemia onset. And then we have a cascade of recruitment of peripheral immune cells in the brain. Innate immune cells such as neutrophils and monocytes within hours to a few days then adaptive immune cells peaking much later only after several days into the brain. So I think you get it, the fact that there's innate inactivation, not innate, sorry, but rather a resident inactivation first and then recruitment. But you've shown it pretty elegantly that why blocking recruitment doesn't help in outcomes, at least in, in animal models and thus presumably in people as well. Could, could you go into that a little bit? Because I think that's one of the things that, you know, clinically when I've had to treat stroke, it's frustrating because you can't do anything essentially. Besides, if I can get there in a little bit and open up the clot, great. Otherwise it's rehab. Um, and we, everyone's wanted a therapy that could at least bend the course of disease, but you really get it why it's harder than we originally, you know, or have thought for a long time. Exactly. I mean, you stress exactly the right points there. So the current situation is is quite frustrating for stroke patients, right? If we can't give them the specific therapies in the very early phase of the disease, meaning reopening the vessels, basically just doing a plumbing job there, 
then there is not much more than we can do than we have, which is also not, not very well established and standardized, not very efficient, and offering secondary prevention, which is also not very efficient, right? So that's why what actually motivated me very early on of my doctor studies to, to focus on the immune response to stroke and, and use this as a therapeutic means, because what we've seen is that in comparison to primary neuroprotective uh, approaches, right? So trying to, to salvage basically neurons from dying due to hypoxia, uh, inflammation might give us a much larger time window to actually interfere with uh, secondary expansion of the lesion, secondary neural loss, but then also um, to, to modulate actually recovery processes in the brain. Um, so that's our primary motivation, why we want to modulate. Now, what you mentioned is problems, how to actually move forward with this, right? 10 years ago, I was also thinking that blocking simply the invasion of pro-inflammatory and potentially deleterious cells from the periphery into the brain would be a very smart approach. And we did several studies in that direction, trying to block the invasion with compounds which have been well established and known from diseases such as multiple sclerosis, for example, natalizumab, so blocking integrate interaction, which is very efficient to block the invasion into the brain. And several of these compounds have also moved forward into clinical trials, which um, have partially even been successful, for example, for the case of Fingalimat, so uh, S1P1 receptor inhibitor, which basically keeps lymphocytes stuck in lymph nodes, right? Um, but what we have learned now is that it, this might not be the smartest approach on the long run. Because on one side, we now just start to understand how inflammation actually contributes to recovery in the chronic phase, that actually inflammation is an integral part of recovery and of plasticity in the brain. And on the other side, that modulating just the invasion in the acute phase might not even have any effect on residency of T cells in the brain. And I think in our recent study that you're mentioning, uh, um, JXMED, uh, what we have shown is that T cells might evade such strategies because they simply become resident in the brain and they cannot be targeted by these antibodies anymore. So what we see there is the development of a real tissue resident T cell population, which opens up an old niche there. And they stay there for as long as we have observed. So in patients for years after the stroke, we still find T cells in the brain and happily being resident and proliferating there. So much for immune privilege of the brain. I, I really like how that um, has completely fallen apart in a way. Um, that made me, makes me think about, we, we've discussed, as I mentioned, neuroimmunology has been uh, showing up in the immunology podcast for a while now. And it makes me think of a different model, which we also talked about, which is uh, traumatic brain injury, which I think there's a similar idea that you have recruitment of, 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 uh, inflama of uh, various immune cells to the brain. Uh, some, some labs have shown that if you can over-recruit T-Rex, that can be very beneficial. Production of IL-2 in the brain can be beneficial. Uh, so my question first is, is that a similar, are, are, are the basics between a stroke and a traumatic brain injury kind of similar? And the second question is that you mentioned, I think this is a very basic for a person that doesn't know a lot about the brain itself. So you mentioned that neurons die. So you don't want neurons to die. That's, I think that's clear enough. Um, so the only, so the cell death of neurons is only a consequence of hypoxia or are they also being 
killed by inflammation by signaling is the microglia there maybe maybe interfering with their survival what exactly does kills the neurons and what exactly are the mechanisms that we know or we suspect are protective protecting the, the, the integrity of the neurons in, in the tissue yeah, this, this is a great, but also a very big question that you're asking here, <laughs> and even two of them. So uh, so let me start with the first one, the comparison of stroke and TBI. Yeah, I tend very much to, to see as we work on stroke as a model system, not only because we like it as a model, but because, of course, it's an extremely prevalent and important disease. It's basically the, the second uh, largest killer uh, in the Western world and the most important cause, you know, of disability in adult people. So um, it's just a very important disease, but many of the things that we do in stroke, I think, can be directly translated, of course, to acute brain injuries and also other acute lesions to the brain that might not even be ischemic or traumatic, but even, for example, inflammatory. Uh, acute inflammatory bouts, we have learned, induce very similar cascades. So, so much to generalize this, but of course, then in detail, there are detailed differences, but which might be very important. For example, the impact of different diseases on border structures like the meninges, uh, like the perivascular space and so on, which might be directly affected and is altered, of course, after traumatic brain injury, but is not so much affected, at least in the acute phase, by ischemia, for example. And this might modulate actually the disease course and then the contribution of different pathological cascades, right? Now, um, you asked the question about what is actually driving neuronal death. Of course, obviously, stroke being a disease of ischemia, right, the, the primary driver is simply a lack of oxygen and glucose. No oxygen, no glucose, neuron not happy, neuron is going to die in a pretty short time. So, but, but then after this, this is initiating a very complex cascade of secondary events. And in this secondary uh, uh, events cascade, inflammation takes really a prime position. So we estimated about 20% or so of the overall tissue lesion that we see, tissue injury, might be kind of directly or secondarily due to inflammatory processes. We know this, for example, from animal experiments um, where we utilize models of lymphocyte deficiency, microglia depletion, modulating microglia activation, or T-cell or B-cell recruitment, those kind of simple uh, approaches, right, to modulate uh, or take out of the equation big populations of innate adaptive immunity. Now, it's, it's difficult now to pin it down to a to, uh, simple and precise single mechanisms that are only deleterious or protective, as is usually probably the case. So what we've learned is that microglia might be neurotoxic by production of directly neurotoxic cytokines, for example, interferon gamma can directly drive neurons into apoptosis and contribute in already hypoxic neurons to become apoptotic and be then permanently lost. But on the other side, we have also learned that microglia can have even protective functions, for example, simply by buffering basically the extracellular space, by preventing um, electrical phenomena, which we're calling cortical spreading depolarization. So basically an uncontrolled wave uh, of electric depolarization, which goes over the cortex and stresses the cortex even more um, in addition to ischemia. The same is the case also for 
adaptive immune cells, which come in later, as I mentioned before. But also there, of course, as you know, there are anti-inflammatory subpopulations, which are protective clearly and um, have a job um, to prevent an overshooting immune reaction. But on the other side, pro-inflammatory T cell subpopulations, for example, can again further promote inflammation. Yeah. Since you mentioned uh, regulatory T cells, yeah, my first paper actually was on regulatory T cells and characterizing the role of T-Rex uh, in doing exactly this job, preventing an overshooting immune reaction and contributing then to at least a partial resolution of inflammation in the subacute phase. So before we jump, you talked though about, you know, part of stroke death of neurons is obviously the lack of glucose, right? So they starve real quick. But I've also learn through ischemia the part of the damage is the reperfusion so when you open it back up you get this burst of oxidative stress which includes immune cells coming into the party and just massive amounts of oxygen flooding in that that it, that it got used to a hypoxic environment so to speak and you have this chemical shift how much of that is really just oxygen itself versus it's the immune cells first hit as you said you know there's a lot of reason to think that, that this is really a biphasic or triphasic process, but that very initial reperfusion, how much of that injury is really immune driven? Yeah, I, I, I tend to separate those kind of events, you know, for a simple reason that we can time things uh, in, in stroke very well. So which is probably also an advantage of this model because we know exactly when the pathology starts and the pathology starts with ischemia, nothing else. This is the drive of the disease. So that's why it is in, in those terms, it's a very simple disease, right? We, we simply have ischemia, which leads to tissue injury, which as you know, if you have such a big tissue injury acutely developing in any organ, this will lead to a massive inflammatory response. Now, the second uh, um, tissue injury, if you want to call it that, that you mentioned is reperfusion injury. And this is of course not an ischemic injury, but in some sense, there's kind of an hemorrhagic injury, but it, it has the same consequence that it has kind of more physical properties on tissue homeostasis and balance in neuronal viability and leading to endothelial damage and thereby also changes again to parenchymal homeostasis leading to neuronal loss. But I conceptually separate this from the actual inflammatory response. Um, reperfusion injury and activation of the endothelium might promote further inflammation and might even modulate it because you do have changes on the endothelial surface, uh, which is a large barrier basically between the systemic environment and the brain, right? But it is not an immunological mechanism per se. So we discuss now mostly the acute phase, so after the ischemia, after the, the, the stroke, and maybe from a perspective, you know, of, of, of a medical perspective, what comes after? And what, if any role, does the immune system have in that sense? So after the person survives the stroke, there's a damage. Uh, do people often have a chronic kind of damage? How does this... Uh, blood vessel recover, but the tissue is gone. So a person that doesn't understand exactly what happens after a stroke, what should I know or to understand the aftermath? Yeah. So what I'm fascinated is, right, what, what fascinates me is that think about a stroke as a loss of the function of your right arm, for example, right? You cannot move your right arm anymore because 
the brain area that moves your arm is simply damaged. But most patients will recover part or all of this function again within weeks to a few months. And so far, we still don't understand how this works. And I think this is fascinating that the brain has this capability to be so plastic to basically redistribute functions from a lost brain area to another one. Now, why do I mention this here? Because I think that this is very much linked actually to immunological processes. And immunological processes, meaning the inflammatory response in the tissue itself, is very much on one side aiding in this and actually facilitating plasticity because the brain has to go basically back into a state of pathological plasticity, which is actually not allowed in an adult brain anymore. But on the other side, the inflammatory response can also hamper this process and, and be in its way. So what we're trying to understand is which parts actually of the inflammatory response are beneficial to this um, plastic process and the ability of the brain to restructure itself and gain function again, and which are detrimental. But this is a very, very uh, uh, new field and we are really in the, in the first days of this field, which I think is very exciting. So until probably a few years ago only, um, most labs working in this field have really just focused on, on the acute phase. When an acute phase, what I mean is like the first day even only after a stroke. Um, I would think that about 90% probably of, of stroke literature and traumatic brain injury literature is very much on the first days only. Um, and uh, I'm not really looking into the interaction of the brain and the immune system after that. So what we have observed is a surprising phenomenon of chronic neuroinflammation. Something that has been kind of more anecdotally also described in, in traumatic brain injury and animal models here and there, but not really in detail. And, and I think this is very surprising and, and very exciting because you have to compare this when you cut your skin, right? You do expect that you have an inflammatory response there, but you also expect that this inflammatory response will be resolved after a few days, hopefully, or this might be intellectually different. But you would not expect that you have there an open and soothing wound for months and years, right? Uh, that would be horrible. But that's basically what happens in the brain. After a traumatic brain injury, um, for example, in kids, these kids have for decades actually activated mitochondria in the brain and even adaptive immune cells, which can be found in, uh, in niches in, in the brain. And the same is after stroke. So we have analyzed, for example, uh, autopsy patient samples, brains from, from patients months and years after the stroke and found large numbers of T cells in these brains and of uh, microglia, which have the, the morphology of uh, highly activated microglia as we find them also in the acute phase. And now we're starting basically to take those systems apart and trying to understand what's actually driving this chronic inflammatory response and how it might contribute to recovery. So you'd never go back to the baseline, basically. You ask this as a simple question, but I think this is this is very important, right? Yes, yes, does, yes. Does the brain want to go back to baseline, and would this be beneficial? I mean, mm. what I can tell you is that, of course, a first reaction would be if we see something change, right? So a deviation from homeostasis that uh, what might be beneficial is to drive the system back to a naive state of homeostasis but that might not be actually protective. So when we deplete, for example, microglia 
in the chronic phase of the stroke because they're activated. So let's wipe them out. Mice in which we do this have uh, uh, big problems actually to recover in comparison to, to the control treated mice. Also, if we deplete lymphocytes, for example, these mice recover by far worse actually than animals that do have lymphocytes invading into the brain. But on the other side, for sure, chronic inflammation also contributes to uh, chronic loss of neurons and also of cognitive capacity, something which is seen also in TBI and in stroke patients as post-stroke dementia and cognitive decline, which can be associated to some degree also to, to neuroinflammation. So again, it comes back to the point that it is very complex and we have to understand actually what are the functions of the immune system that uh, allow plasticity and recovery, but what are the ones actually that might drive uh, secondary tissue injury? So this is the perfect segue um, to your uh, paper on bioarchives now, right? With uh, you talking about how T cells modulate the microglial response. So you mentioned microglia before. I don't know if everyone, it's not a T cell or a B cell or a macrophage. So maybe remind people what those cells are and then what you found in this paper that's undergoing, I think, review now, right? That's right, yeah. So in, in one of our most recent papers, the one that you mentioned, we are basically studying the interaction now of T cells specifically with microglia. Um, microglia well, are basically brain macrophages. They are somewhat distinct by its ontogeny because they come from a York sac, but in, in essence, they are simply uh, macrophages of the brain which have some uh, niche and tissue-specific functions in comparison to macrophages of other organs. Um, now, why are we interested in microglia and T-cell interaction? Um, probably that's, that's, that's an aspect that I need to explain. So. In, in the past, we did a lot of work actually on the contribution of T cell and different T cell subpopulations actually to the stroke pathophysiology. But um, when you look in the in, in the brain, the impact that these populations have is actually surprising in comparison to their sheer number and the time point when they recruit the brain. So we're always a little bit wondering, you know, why are they so important? But we find just a, a couple of thousand of those guys actually in the brain. Can they actually do their job on their own or are they just mediators and other cells are basically amplifying their effect? And it seemed to us that the most likely amplifier of, of this effect would be microglia, the resident cells. So microglia T-cell interaction, I, I assume, is, is mainly studied in the context of microglia priming T-cells, presenting antigen as APCs to the T-cells, presenting chemokines to attract them and so on, but not so much in the other direction, actually, what do invading adaptive immune cells do to the tissue-resident macrophages, in this case, microglia. And what we've seen is that when we simply don't have any lymphocytes around in red knockout mice with no TMD cells, the microglia response to stroke is quite different. Um, and then another key experiment which performed was to use ex vivo polarized T helper cells, which we polarized either to become Th1 cells or Treg cells to have kind of two opposing sides uh, of this branch and injected them directly into the CS epithelial brain. What we've seen there is that this modulates actually the transatomic profile of the microglia being reactive to the stroke, but those T cells did not even have to invade actually with into the brain parenchyma, but it's most likely actually their cytokine, which they secrete in the CSF, and then the brain parenchyma basically being bathed in the CSF constantly, which then drives the different 
effects on, on microbiome. So T studs being basically kind of the fine tuners of the microbial response to the, to the stroke. Microbial respond anyways to tissue injury. They are kind of hypersensitive to anything going on in the brain, um, but they can be fine-tuned. And this fine-tuning might be very relevant actually in the long run on how these cells behave and if they then acquire pro-regenerative or actually uh, deleterious functions. I mean, there's so many layers of complexity and surprisingly, uh, but it's really interesting to see that we are starting to kind of peel them a little bit and understand better uh, the, inter the, in the talk between uh, microglia, the neurons, the, the immune cells that we usually consider more systemic than anything else. I have a question that's a little bit, I don't want to say naive or kind of, maybe it's not exactly your interest, but given that you know so much about the immune uh, response in the brain, is there anything in the recent years or what is our understanding currently of the response in the brain or if there's any uh, immunological response as a to severe stress, not physical damage or stroke, but something that is more stress that uh, is initially maybe systemic and then can affect, we know that stress can affect behavior, can affect uh, certain parts of, of, the, of, the, of the brain. Do we know anything about the immune system in the brain causing any, any damage through, due to stress? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great idea. So I'm not aware of specific studies, you know, looking in, in a non-disease context. That's what you're asking, right? Basically mm -hmm. uh, thinking about healthy young people, right, under stress conditions, if, if that might actually affect um, homeostasis of, of, of the brain immune system, right? So mainly microglia and patrolling T cells. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of this, but what, what we do know is that stress, for example, of course, has effects on um, systemic inflammation and systemic immune homeostasis, but also in conditions of vascular inflammation. There are two very good studies, actually, um, from, um, uh, from, from the Nahendorf lab and also from Hendrik Sager, uh, working on atherosclerosis which is kind of related to many processes that we have in other conditions of chronic inflammation, might it be in the brain or in others, where we have seen that uh, in these studies that stress actually modulates the local effects within this, uh, um, within the inflamed artery and can even promote inflammation in the artery, mainly through direct neuronal uh, um, innovation of the arteries. So I think it's very conceivable that something like that might also happen in the brain, for example, by sensing stress and stress-related hormones via the vagus nerve, which then would be transmitted to the brain, or simply by modulating actually brain perfusion. You know, brain perfusion is, is a peculiar thing and needs to be very tightly regulated. The, the brain gets very quickly stressed if the brain perfusion is not maintained under very rigid, uh, you know, conditions. So, um, in that sense, an example that I can give you is that we did experiments where we did not induce a stroke, so tissue injury, but just a few minutes of hyperperfusion. So basically, we just blocked blood perfusion of the brain for a few minutes. Nothing happens. Neurons survive, astrocytes are just fine, the arteries are just fine, but microglia become massively activated, very comparable to a tissue injury itself. So these cells, that's why I mentioned before to being 
hypersensitive to anything going on. They are they're just doing a very good job in what they're meant for, right? To sensing changes in tissue homeostasis. That's why I think you know that uh, probably their their impact on on tissue homeostasis and then secondary this might be actually even underestimated, and uh, we might learn more about this from from studies looking on physiological causes such as stress. Yeah. I guess as the final conclusion, we're we're still kind of stuck where we are because we're still, as you said, we're kind of reappreciating the field and going forward. Do you think how many years out do you think it'll be before there's a therapy that can bend the curve on? I don't care if it's TBI or stroke, but pick. I'm not talking about MS, but pick pick something that we have nothing for essentially, like all these you know post injury, pick an injury, brain inflammation. You think it's five years, ten years? You think we're even earlier than that because we just, as you said, we 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 just have blunt instruments, and it's probably going to be something subtle where you want less immune cells on day zero, but you want them there on day five. And how do you do that, and so on? Like you, you know, you have a clinical background as well. Where do you think we are on this? Well, I think from from all what we have learned so far in in the past decade, and I think we have come a long way actually in the past decade. We have learned from many labs so much and many new labs have actually embarked you know in this research field and and we can see this is really a largely growing field um i can remember you know when when as a student i i joined the first international conference there was not a single session about inflammation and stroke um i was one of the few with my poster there on regulatory teasers talk, talking about this topic now what we have is whole meetings on stroke uh, uh, immunology, one that we organized ourselves. And, and it takes up a large part actually of, of research presented in a stroke community. So I think this is a fantastic achievement and we've come a very long way and something will come out of this. On the other side, I think that tissue inflammation is a tricky thing. It's very complicated because it's tissue and niche specific. There is interaction of many players there. So finding something to modulate the inflammatory response in the brain will take time. And it takes first better understanding of what actually happens there and who are the players and how do they communicate with each other. I'm more optimistic about something that we did not talk so far about, which is the systemic inflammatory response to stroke, which is equally important, I think, and an important driver of secondary comorbidities. And I'll think about things like um, cytokine-induced sickness behavior, depressive-like behavior, things that can be observed in stroke patients and very much contribute actually to their uh, comorbidity, uh, exacerbation of atherosclerosis, exacerbation of diabetes, all things that can be you know, promoted by systemic inflammation, which is quite pronounced after stroke. And I think there we are further down because we have better tools in hand, a better understanding about the systemic immune response to sterile injuries. Uh, in essence, what we see after stroke is very similar to what we see as a systemic immune response to sepsis, for example. And we can utilize many of the things that we have understood, for example, in the sepsis field and just translate them to stroke. And um, that's why I'm much more optimistic that we might have actually potent uh, therapeutics to at least prevent some of those systemic comorbidities which are driven by the inflammatory response. Well, with that high note uh, on the treatment side, uh, we are so happy to have uh, have uh, spoken with you about, about your research, about uh, 
the the role of the immune system after stroke. Uh, we'd like to ask a little kind of uh, fun question to our to our guests at the end, so to get them to know a little bit better uh, besides their research. So we're gonna do a quick fire of three questions that you need to kind of reply to, just filling the blanks at the end of the sentence. Uh, when I am not conducting research, I am spending probably time with my family and enjoying this the, the great outdoors here of Munich in the Alps. Yeah, it's a very beautiful scene. And if you haven't been here, you should definitely visit it. I have. I love all that area. It's beautiful. So yes, Munich is a <laughs> is a jewel. Um, if I could have one superpower, it would be. I think it would be to to travel in time. I would be fascinated to to meet some historic figures. Not only in science, but also artists and musicians would be great to have a chat with those guys. Yeah, you just make, make to make sure not to meet yourself of the past or the future. Don't change the timeline. Yes, don't change the timeline. Just ask Doc, he knows. Oh, you're getting uh, too serious about that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't start the day without? Coffee. Lots of <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> what an unimaginative reply, but that makes sense, I guess. Hey, well, it reduces all cause mortality. I'm I know say you that were going to say and over again. It has some of the best data I've ever seen. It's so weird. <laughs> That's very good. I mean, yeah, coffee to start the day sounds sounds like a treat. So again, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on. This was great. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Podcast or by email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.